Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. From WDEV in Waterbury, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. Thanks for joining us. It's Wednesday, February 7th, and we are glad to have you along for our regular journey through all things politics in Vermont, the country, and today, the world. It's Black History Month, and 60 years ago, the Beatles arrived in New York City and changed the world. We will spend parts of today and Friday exploring what Black History Month means, how we can understand black history, and take a long moment to immerse ourselves in that powerful part of the American story. And for guests on the show today, we review the presidential campaign with former National Republican campaign consultant Stuart Stevens. Stevens is the author of It Was All a Lie, a review and rebuke of the Republican Party as it became something that he could no longer recognize uh, and became a party controlled at least in part by former President Donald Trump. Stevens is an advisor to the Lincoln Project, which is an anti-Trump group of mostly Republicans, and he he lives in Vermont. And at 10 a.m., we go international and try to better understand the Middle East situation, Israel and Gaza, and the international platforms that exist to allow for discussion and decisions to be made about international disputes. Specifically, we're going to talk about the International Criminal Court of the United Nations. And our guest, Paul Risley, is a longtime U.N. spokesman, consultant, and senior aide to several U.S. senators with also lots of ties to Vermont. Paul will be here to explain the ICC, what it does, and why. And at 1045, a short take on a moment in time out of a busy life that makes life worth living especially now in the dark of winter. Stay with us until then. You won't be disappointed. You can hear us at AM 550, as always, in our various FM stations, not to mention our podcast at WDEVradio.com. That podcast appears magically on the website shortly after the show, so be sure to click on it and share it with friends. We welcome your calls and emails. The number to call, as always, is 802-244-1777. Send your emails to vermontviewpoint at radiovermont.com. And with that, this Wednesday essay in honor of our producer, Greg Titus, who I know is a huge music fan. There they were at the Grammys this week, two huge music stars, one white, one black, each with huge audiences and dedicated fans, and likely not much crossover. Tracy Chapman, the folk singer, wrote and performed a song in 1988 called Fast Car. It is an anthem about escaping poverty, facing critical decisions about the future, and getting out of town, driving fast, and trying to be someone. The song captured me 35 years ago, along with millions of others, Chapman could have been a celebrity like Taylor Swift, but she chose a different route, elusive, thoughtful, private. She lives in San Francisco and 
goes to school board meetings and goes to the local grocery store, but much of her work is done in private. Her song, Fast Car, won a Grammy in 1989. And then a few years ago, along comes a country singer named Luke Combs, who covers the song Fast Car at his sold-out big arena concerts all over the country. Wait a minute. A white country singer covering a Tracy Chapman song? What gives? And then this week at the Grammy Awards, something great happened. While we Vermonters were waiting to see if local boy Noah Kahn would win for Best New Artist, two figures took the stage shrouded in darkness. The intro guitar lick to Fast Car began ever recognizable, but you, you really couldn't see who it was. And slowly the lights came up, and there, 35 years after winning a Grammy, is Tracy Chapman, beaming. And there also next to her is Luke Combs, beaming. The song is ever beautiful, mournful, hopeful, a young couple in poverty, struggling, a father drinking too much, a car, fast, to get them out of Dodge for a better life. I watch these two stars singing on stage with deep respect and admiration for each other. Combs fills stadiums. Chapman chooses not to. I thought of their audiences and how they could not be more different. Combs is country in Nashville. He sings to a blue-collar crowd, cars, trucks, beer, and, well, country music. King people, like a lot of Trump voters. Chapman sings to a far more liberal crowd, folkies, Dylan lovers, probably a lot of Joe Biden voters. And then I thought, the genius of the song is that it connects with everyone for a better life, everyone who wants that life, everyone with ambition and desires, black people, white people, and everyone in between can love this song. It is a mistake, perhaps, to stereotype the audiences of these two artists. The song applies, in the end, to all of us, wherever we are, whatever struggle we face. I got a plan to get us out of here, Chapman writes. And by the way, uh, the song, since Luke Combs has covered it, has risen, risen to the top of the country charts. And Chapman said the other day, I never thought that I'd be at the top of the country charts. For that moment on stage uh, this week, Luke Combs and Tracy Chapman defied the society we have created that drives us apart, defied the media and politicians, Facebook and Instagram, and those who profit from division and hatred. For that moment, their audiences were the same, loving the same song while loving very different artists. The smiles on their faces, Taylor Swift on her feet, country star crossover uh, celebrity artist Brandi Carlisle, who I last saw at the Vermont State House singing for Bernie Sanders, was swaying in the arms of a colleague. The respect the bow that Luke Combs gave Chapman at the end of the song was enough to believe that we could all come together to do better, especially during this observation of Black History Month. But the culture wars that divide us so deeply elsewhere seemed perhaps fleetingly far away Sunday night, as a critic wrote in the New York Times. The song during Chapman and Combs' five-minute performance felt incredibly spacious, larger than the limitations of genre, welcoming and expansive enough to hold every single person it had ever touched, regardless of the markers of identity that so often divide us. 
It was a reminder of music's unique ability to obliterate external differences. Fast Car is about something more internal and universal. It's a song about the wants and needs that make us human, the desire to be happy, to be loved, and to be free. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis, and you're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. On to the presidential campaign, where we're taking a deep dive into the inner workings of what is really going on right now. If you follow presidential politics, especially Republican politics over the last 25 years, most of the elected governors and senators shared a key factor. Their television advertising and overall campaign strategy were led by our next guest, Stuart Stevens. Stevens is an advisor to the Lincoln Project, a political campaign firm dedicated to stopping the Trump and the MAGA movement. He's the author of The Conspiracy to End America, How My Old Party is Driving Our Democracy to Autocracy. And best of all, he lives in Vermont and is blunt about his views on the current state of our politics and the Republican Party. Stuart Stevens, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. Uh, thanks for asking me to the party, Kevin. Great to be here. So can we you did, start you didn't, with... have to, you didn't have to rub it in about all these Republican dialectics, but that's okay. <laughs> Go ahead. You know. It, hey, it's... I deserve it. I deserve it. <laughs> well, it's great to have you on. Uh, can we start with the presidential race? And uh, I mean, it's it's hard to to know where to start. We've got the primaries going on. We've got Trump's uh, ongoing court battles, uh, Joe Biden, et cetera. How, how do you view the presidential race as it stands right now? Well, I don't, I don't really think there is a primary. Um, the difference between you, me, and uh, Haley is that it, uh, she's won two counties and you and I haven't. Um, this race is not really a race. Republicans are not going to nominate her. Um, this uh, is a Biden-Trump race. Um, I'm actually uh, uh, optimistic about the race. I think Biden is going to win by a larger margin than he won last time for a lot of reasons we could discuss if he wanted to. Um, but uh, without a doubt, the Oakland State, the most important election of our lifetime, this is the most important election of our lifetime. Um, the stakes are generational in their impact uh, in the U.S. and in Europe, uh, around the world. Um, but I, I I think Biden is on a track to win now. What uh, t- Tell us why you believe that, why, why you think well, Biden uh, is going to win. Yeah, I, I think, first of all, when you look at these polls, you see Biden's approval rating down at 38. I think it's a very misleading number. Um, we've never had uh, an election in which – the majority of the other party thought that the occupier of the White House was an illegal occupier. So if you believe that Joe Biden stole the White House, what in the world can you tell that person uh, to get them to have a favorable impression of Biden? You know, okay, he stole the White House. We got that. But what about that infrastructure bill? You know, what about that chip bill? You know, I mean, it's ridiculous. Um, if I was polling in this race, which I kind of am polling over doing about the Trump, uh, I, I just toss out anybody as a screening question. Do you believe Joe Biden won a free and fair election? If you say no, then I toss you out of the poll. There's no need to poll you. And when you look at that universe of those voters, and the, his approval rating is, is uh, 
they're more up in a normal level. But, you know, you've had these polls recently, uh, one in New Hampshire, one in Pennsylvania, in the last couple of weeks where Biden's approval was at 38, and he was winning by nine points. So I think we're going to see uh, a historic uh, disconnect between job approval and uh, the ballot. I think it's perfectly normal to think that Joe Biden isn't doing a great job, but you're not going to vote for, for Donald Trump. No, I think Joe Biden is doing a great job. I wrote a piece that's coming out in the New Republic uh, in, in a week or so. Uh, the Democrats should start calling Joe Biden a great president, which I think they should. And uh, keep going on that. Why? What, what's Biden done uh, in his first term that warrants that? Well, first, you know, he, he took over in a time, well, unparalleled in American history following an insurrection, the first time an outgoing president didn't go to the inaugural, an extraordinarily divided country, um, and he's achieved great stuff. Uh, the infrastructure bill is uh, the, the greatest bill of its kind, public spend, you know, expenditure bill uh, in the history of the country, um, which is why you see Republicans around the country running for re-election, pointing to things that are getting done because of the infrastructure bill that they voted against. Um, he has uh, put together, a, uh, helped hold together a coalition in Europe, uh, or really around the world, but primarily in Europe, uh, that is, is opposing uh, Russia in a genocidal war, the likes of which we haven't seen since World War II. Um, I, I think that the future of really the, the Western order uh, hinges on Ukraine. Without a doubt, if Russia defeats Ukraine, uh, they'll take a, a brief uh, respite, and then it's going to be on to other countries. There's no question about that. Um, and you've seen right now Republicans um, have really become the party uh, of Putin, which is the most extraordinary thing you can imagine. Um, Biden has done the chips bill. is a huge uh, achievement. You have uh, historically low unemployment. The stock market's at record prices. America is producing more oil than we ever have uh, uh, in our history, more than any other country uh, in the world, which is part of the reason that gas prices are going down. Um, I, I, you know, he's a, it's a great record of achievement, particularly considering – I mean, imagine – I think about this. Like you're working in the White House and you're working on – uh, congressional relations. So your job, you know, you've, you know, you've known plenty of people that have these jobs. Together. Your job is to go up to the Hill and convince Republicans that, okay, you may not like my guy, but here's why you should vote for this bill. Or maybe we can come to some compromise. Bill. Let's get something done. So you walk into an office and you're dealing with a, a member of Congress or a senator who not only is of another party, but doesn't think your boss was legally elected. I mean, that's never happened before. What do you say? Okay, yeah, my boss stole the White House. We really need your help on this bill. Uh, and yet they're still getting stuff done. Um, I, I think it's just uh, extraordinary. Um, so um, I, I think Biden is going to go down as one of these unlikely great historical figures. Winston Churchill was the same way. Who was Winston Churchill in 1937? Um, Margaret Thatcher, same way. Um, a moment in which uh, an unlikely person came forward 
And what had been their negatives in many ways became positives. Biden ran for president before several times, wasn't very good at it. He was seen as boring. Boring is now stable. He was seen as someone who'd been in, uh, in uh, elected office since he was like, you know, a teenager. Now experience is a good thing. I say having somebody that knows how to get things done. Um, his personality is not the most charismatic, but he's stable. He's predictable. Those become pluses. And I think that that uh, has, has become tremendously important in the American uh, moment. Well, and I and I noticed, Stuart, that Biden, uh, we can go way down the legislative rabbit hole here. I mean, there's a right. you know, the border deal uh, just came unglued. Uh, this was a border deal that the Republicans wanted and then they failed to get it over the finish line. And I see the, the president saying things like it going kind of back to his blue collar Scranton roots, uh, telling people to telling Republicans to show some spine and defy Trump on the border deal and and leaking certain stories about uh, a, a bad name that he called Trump the other day is clearly a leak from the White House. Um, you know, Biden's getting a little more salty. And I, I wonder if that is is uh, well, clearly that's on purpose. Yeah, look, um, I uh, and this is part of what we do in the Lincoln project. Um, if, if you're working in the Biden campaign, um, you, you really are involved in two processes, reelecting a, a president, but you're also in a, a governing uh, mode. You, you, there are things that Biden could be saying that might help him win reelection that would be detrimental to a moment that you are attempting to govern. And that's a very difficult balance. Um, I worked for Bush in 2004. He had to deal with that. Every every uh, incumbent has to deal with that. It's particularly more uh, onerous burden now because the Republican Party really isn't a governing party anymore. The only governing party in America now is the Democratic Party, and I say that as somebody that spent a lot of time pointing out flaws in the Democratic Party. But it's the only pro-democracy governing party in America. That's the only thing that matters. Um, I think that the way to win this race is uh, well, well, two things need to be done that I think they're on their way to doing. Um, you have to make Biden the candidate of the future, Trump the candidate of the past. So you say, okay, you got a guy his age, how do you make him the candidate of the future? Well, in 20, uh, Biden's best group was under 30 voters. He won them by double digits. And Biden's policies are very much future oriented. All this stuff we talk about the infrastructure bill, chips bill, all the medical stuff he's doing. This is stuff that affects people's lives for the future. And there really is no policy in the Republican Party now at all, which is why they're like, you know, they control Congress and they're investigating Hunter Biden's laptop. I mean, it's ridiculous. And, you, you know, you have these uh, political scientists now who study these things. They're coming out and saying this is the most uh, unproductive Congress, you know, in uh, X number of years. Um, and, and the root of that is there, there is no governing philosophy in the Republican Party now. If you held a gun to my head and said, what does it mean to be a conservative America today? I'd say, shoot me. I have no idea. I mean, say what you will about Elizabeth Warren. She has a theory of government. She, you can argue with her. She can articulate it brilliantly. You can think she's wrong. You can think she's great. You can think maybe she's right, but you can talk about it. You can't do that with anybody on the other side. So they've got to make Biden a candidate of the future. And Biden has to be the safe choice. Trump has to be the dangerous candidate in this race. And I 
believe that there's absolutely nothing you can do to get someone uh, who is deep in this MAGA movement. If you don't believe the president's not legally elected, uh, there's nothing you're going to do. Those people are going to vote for Donald Trump. Okay, I I wouldn't spend any time talking to him. And I don't think you should hesitate uh, uh, to call those people out. I don't want to understand the guy standing in the Capitol in the Camp Auschwitz sweatshirt. I don't I don't need to understand that person. I just want to put him in jail. And at the Lincoln Project, we have the freedom to go about that. You know, if you're working for a candidate, you call your opponent, make an ad calling your opponent a liar. Your candidate gets asked, is that, you know, you got an ad. Do you think your opponent's really a liar? The candidate better well say yes. I mean, you've been there. Um, In the Lincoln Project, when I first started working with them, I realized how incredibly liberating it was not to have a client. You know, we could put a billboard of Ivanka and Jared up in Times Square saying that they killed uh, New Yorkers. And nobody said to you know, Joe Biden, how'd you let that happen? So he gives us the freedom to go out and uh, position Trump in a way that he needs to be positioned. But the White House has certain limitations in their ability to do that. Um, so I think the more polarized this race gets, the better it is. If I ran the Democratic Party, God help us, I would wake up every morning trying to get in a culture war, to speak to your earlier essay, which I really enjoyed. Um, because Republicans are losing these culture wars. They get in a fight, a culture war with Nike over Colin Kaepernick. Who won that? Nike made $9 billion. They got in a culture war, remember, over NASCAR, when NASCAR banned the Trevor flag. So you're a Republican and you're in a, a, a culture war with NASCAR. Really? They got in a culture war with Walmart when Walmart had a mask mandate. So we're going to fight Walmart? You know, it's like Ron DeSantis gets in a, a, a culture war with Disney. Really? You're, you're fighting the happiness company? I mean, really? You're going to do that? Um, so, you know, they end up, they have a nominee who uh, a, a jury has found uh, guilty of sexual assault, which a judge classifies as rape. So their answer to, that's a problem with women voters, so their answer is what? Attack Taylor Swift. <laughs> it's like crazy. So I, I would go right at that stuff. I don't think that uh, Republicans, one of the great realities of where the Republican Party is today. It is a party uncomfortable with the modern world. It is uncomfortable with the cultural change that uh, is not only American, it's everywhere, Um, which is part of their embrace of Russia. They look at Russia and they see, well, this is a world that we like. Putin says there's no gay people in Russia. There's no women in power in Russia. They're all white. Uh, Christian, supposedly. Those who believe Vladimir Putin's a Christian, you're insane. Um, and, you know, they have elections that are performative but not decisive. Tell me Ron DeSantis doesn't like that world. So, um, you know, one of the guys that I used to work for, Haley Barber, you remember Haley? Uh, yeah. Great, ran a great, great Southern political character, uh, ran the Republican Party for a while, uh, then uh, got elected governor of Mississippi for two terms. I uh, was governor during Hurricane Katrina, which did a brilliant job, actually. Um, but Haley used to say, be for the future, it's going to happen anyway. Which is sort of a truism in politics that I think the Republican Party has forgotten. It's fighting the future. And, you know, in many ways, Kevin, this is all about race. Trump's coalition is 85% white in a country that's 59% white, less so since we've been talking. Um, you know, we, we, we talk about how America is going to become a majority minority country. 
a minority-majority country. But in a way, we already have. For 16 years or younger in America, the majority are not white. So, you know, I really, really think the odds are good that they're going to still be non-white. Okay. And that is really at the essence of what the Republican Party is dealing with and can adapt to. Stuart, I wonder, could we stay with Joe Biden just for a second and talk about this, uh, uh, the, 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 sort of, the so-called movement of young people, uh, Arab voters, Palestinian sympathetic voters in Michigan? Uh, and, you know, if you're under the age of 40, you don't really know the history of Israel in this country. And so Biden continuing to support by sending uh, millions of dollars to Israel strikes people as a little bit off. Is that a danger for Biden, young people and Palestinian sympathetic people in Michigan, for example? Yeah, I mean, look, when I worked in presidential campaigns, if somebody said, are you worried about, I would stop them at about because you worry about everything. Um Okay. All right. I think we lost Stuart Stevens. Uh, knowing Stuart, he's somewhere deep in British Columbia doing some sort of extreme sport. So uh, I think we'll, he'll call back in and we'll, we'll get him. Uh, in the meantime, uh, glad to take your calls at 244-1777. We're talking about, we're going deep down the rabbit hole of the presidential campaign. Um, there's so much going on out there, uh, you know, with, with Biden and Trump. As Stewart just pointed out, and I think the results of the, of the Nevada caucus bear this out, it, it, it looks like a direct race between former President Donald Trump and current President Joe Biden. So uh, for many, many months now, we're going to have uh, a one-on-one -on -one race. And it it seems that uh, Biden, through a variety of tactics, is uh, getting more salty in his language, as I pointed out. Uh, he's going to take on Trump, and he's going to try to uh, make, as Stewart said, uh, make Trump about the past and, uh, and make him about the future. Uh, that, that's, a, that's kind of a tough uh, road to hoe for Biden, it seems to me, who's 80 plus years old, uh, to make him about the future. But I can see Stewart's point. Uh, you're, you pass an infrastructure bill, you pass a climate change bill, you pass the so-called CHIPS bill about uh, domestic manufacturing and bringing manufacturing back to the United States. Uh, that's That's a fascinating uh, case to make. And as Stuart knows better than anybody, uh, races are about, campaigns are about choices. And if Biden can make this uh, a, a choice about him versus Trump, uh, I, I can see a growing number of people uh, thinking that Biden is actually in, in decent shape here. And uh, we'll, we'll see where that goes. Obviously, you know, at some point you have to wonder, and I, I noticed the D.C., I hate to take you all down these rabbit holes, but for those of us political junkies, we'll, I, we, I feel like we have some something of an obligation to keep you all informed about this. So the, the D.C. of appeals the other day issued a ruling that said 
that former President Trump is not immune from prosecution uh, for acts committed while he was in office. So Trump is saying that he is uh, not prosecutable uh, because of his role in the January 6th insurrection uh, and the attack on the Capitol. He says he's immune from prosecution there. Uh, the D.C. Court of Appeals uh, said that's not true, that he is uh, liable for prosecution. So, so the prosecution of so the prosecution of Trump can go on uh, in the wake of this D.C. Court of Appeals case. Uh, we have Stuart Stevens back on the line. Stuart, I, I want to go back. I apologize. I don't know what happened. Oh, that's okay. We we were talking about. Uh, young people deserting Biden, young people who don't know the history of the creation of Israel, uh, Arab uh, sympathetic voters in Michigan who are angry at the president over his support of Israel. What do you make of all that? Oh, look, I think it's a huge problem uh, for the Biden campaign if there was an election, you know, in in the next month or so. Um, I think one of the most underrated elements in politics uh, is patience. And I think this is going to look very different come October 1st, uh, 2024. Um, You're going to have a different government in Israel. I mean, I've worked a lot in Israeli politics. I worked for Sharon when he beat Netanyahu. Um, I worked in elections uh, when Netanyahu lost um, about a year and a half ago. Um, Netanyahu is for Trump. I mean, we've never really had a foreign leader that was so openly supporting uh, a presidential candidate. Um, but Netanyahu, I think, is not going to be in power. You're going to have a new Israeli government. It's going to look very different. Um, so I, I think this is going to be a very different situation come October 1st. Um, but sure, I mean, Biden needs to win younger voters uh, in large numbers. And if he doesn't, he's going to lose. Uh, okay. Now, I, I we've got you on the show because, in part because you are, it seems to me, the nation's expert in what happened to the Republican Party. Uh, I often have guests on, including the chairman of the Republican Party of Vermont, Paul Dame, who comes on dutifully and says it's time to move on from Trump. Uh, and yet, Yet the apparatus of the Republican Party does not do that. Can you take us back, if you would? Remember, we live in a state of Jim Jeffords, Bob Stafford, Phil Scott, George Aiken, where the Republican Party was supreme and the only division was between the conservative Republicans and the liberal Republicans. Take us back to, oh, the 80s and 90s when John Chafee from Rhode Island and and other moderate Republicans were, you know, helping to run the country. And I guess my question is, what happened? Yeah, I'll just say right up front, I think Phil Scott's probably the best governor in America. Um, And we're very lucky in Vermont to have him. Um, A guy who, like, wakes up to be a public servant, which is pretty much the definition of what a good governor should be. Um, But I think you have to go back earlier than that, Kevin. To me... Well, look, I mean, my history in this is in 2016, a lot of people were wrong about Trump, but it's really hard to find anybody who was more wrong than me. I didn't think he'd win the primary. I didn't think he'd win the general. And when he did, I had a lot of friends in the Republican Party who said, well, Trump has hijacked the party. 
I said, well, you know, I don't really like to think that, but I don't really get that because, you know, the hijacker on the plane is not popular on the plane. Nobody says, oh, great, we get to go to Cuba, not, you know, go visit grandma. Uh, And Trump was very popular with the Republican Party. So how do you say you hijacked a party? Um, And I really started to ask myself a lot of questions. How did I miss this? And, you know, that's what led me to write this book. It was all a lie, how the Republican Party became Donald Trump which I really didn't start out as writing a book. I really wrote it as a exercise in that kind of high school English way. If you can't write something, you don't understand it. And when I, I look at this, um, I think it's pretty clear in post-World War II uh, Republican politics, there was two elements. There was a governing side that was boring, um, responsible, call it the Eisenhower side. And then there was the Joe McCarthy side, conspiratorial, often racist, xenophobic, non-governing. Now, I was very much part of the Eisenhower side, call it. You know, I worked for George Bush. Um, you know, I worked for all these establishment Republicans. You would now call them establishment. Um, and I, you know, I worked for Bush and went down to Austin in 99 and started working for Bush. And I, I think, you know, there's a group of us like me, Nicole Wallace, Matthew Dowd, Mark McKinnon, Michael Gerson is a beautiful writer who ended up as a columnist for the Washington Post and tragically died a year ago. Pete Wainer, who writes for the Atlantic now. We all literally used to sit in the same room in Bush headquarters. And we all came to the same uh, opinion about Trump very quickly. Um, I think it's safe to say that we, certainly I, we thought that our side of the party was the dominant gene. And we knew about the dark side, obviously. We probably played to it too much. But I don't know any conclusion to come to, but that uh, we were wrong. And this other side of the party was the dominant gene. And I, I, I don't believe that people change uh, dramatically in a few years unless there's some intervening events. I don't believe in UFOs. If one lands during the show, I'll change my opinion. But that didn't happen. So this is why I say that Trump didn't change the party. He revealed the party. And if you right. go back to, you know, after Romney lost, the, the party went through this so-called autopsy. Why is it that we keep losing the popular vote? We've only won the popular vote once since 1988. That was 2004 in the Bush campaign, and we barely won. I worked in that race. And, you know, uh, the conclusions of that study came to were pretty obvious, but it's good to say these things. You need to be more inclusive. You need to appeal to more non-white voters. You need to appeal to more women, who, particularly those who work outside the home. Um and then Trump came along, and that was presented not just as a political necessity, but a moral mandate, that if you're going to earn the right to represent this big, cacophonous, changing, uh, diverse country, you need to be like that more. And then Trump came along, and it was almost like this audible sigh of relief, like, thank God we don't have to pretend we believe in this stuff. <laughs> we can just win with white voters. Um, and that's, you know, the tragic element of the party. You know, I mean, and again, in many ways, this is all about race. Um, you know, here's a, a, a staggering statistic, at least staggering to me. 1980, Ronald Reagan wins a big sweeping landslide uh, with uh, 55% of the white vote. John McCain loses to Barack Obama in a not particularly close race with 58% of the white vote. Okay, I mean, that's really all you need to know. And 1956, Eisenhower got 39% of the black vote. That fell off a cliff with Goldwater. He was opposed to the Civil Rights Bill. He got 7% of the black vote. Okay, in 2020, Trump got 8% of the black vote. So that's one point every 56 years. You know, that's going to take a while. 
So the tragedy of the party is that it failed to do the hard work of asking itself and changing of why is it that we don't appeal to more non-white voters, particularly those at the lower economic end of the spectrum. And the party never did that work. Now, we failed at that in the Bush world, but at least we admitted it was a failure. And Ken Melman, who was chairman of the Republican Party in 2005, went before the NAACP and apologized for the Southern strategy. And now uh, there's not even an attempt to do that. Um, I thought, you know, you could sit in the Romney campaign in 2012, which I did, and you could see polls, and you could see there were these low-frequency white voters that could have cared less about what we were talking about in the campaign, you know, smaller government or jobs or Russia. They didn't care about that stuff. But they, they would care about uh, – if you went out and did what Trump did, Muslim ban, Mexicans are rapists, wave the bloody shirt, the racist stuff. Those voters would, would perk up. Now, I would have bet that if you did that, the voters you gained, you would have lost at the upper end of the spectrum with college-educated voters. And Trump was losing those voters right up to the Comey letter in, in 2016, where he won just enough of them to win the election. They came back to right. Biden in 20. Um, so you know, I think what's happened in the Republican Party is a collapse of a party unlike anything we've seen in, in certainly modern American history and I think probably in American political history. Um, and it's going to be studied for a long time. Um, but it's not going to change. The only way to change the Republican Party is to defeat these Republicans over and over and over again. And Payne eventually is the only teacher in politics. Stuart, um, two more questions. Uh, one, one small, one big what, what, when do you think or do you think that the court cases, all of them, the criminal cases, the, the civil cases, uh, begin to take their toll on Trump? At some point, and I thought this was going to happen a long time ago, and I was wrong, just like you were, about all this. At some point, this has got to take a toll, doesn't it? No, I think it already has. Um I think that's part of the reason you're seeing Nikki Haley do as well as uh, she's doing in some of these polls, um, which I think, by the way, is a very misleading number because uh, there's a 25 to 30 percent of the Republican Party that won't vote for anybody but Trump. So when you look at a number showing Nikki Haley beating Donald Trump, it doesn't really calculate uh, beating Joe Biden. It doesn't calculate that that factor in. Um Look, the conventional wisdom is that this is going to be a very tight election and it's going to come down to you know, a few states, probably 400,000 voters. That's probably the safe bet. But I think there's also another chance. I think that this race could look like 1980, where um, it's going to be a tight race up until around October 15th, and then you know, the bottom is going to drop out for Trump. Um, if if uh, I was actually betting on this and I could go to Vegas, I would bet I would take that bet because you get good odds on it. Um, I think that the, you know, the, the fundamental question here is, as you look at this race, it's very similar. But Biden lost last time. So if you rerun this race, Biden wins. Okay. I mean, that's pretty, uh, you know, pretty much a truism. So ask yourself, how many Trump, how many Biden 2020 voters, how many people who voted for Biden in 2020 are now voting for Trump in 2024? I don't think a lot. Right. So Trump's Trump's best group are older voters, which is very Republican demographic. Uh, there's fewer of those. 
there's more younger voters coming into the uh, electorate. So the percentage of younger voters should be higher in this race than it was in the last race. Ultimately, you know, politics is about addition, not subtraction. Trump got 46.2% in 16. He got 46.9% in 20. Romney lost with 47.2%. So you really can't blow Trump with dynamite over 47%, which is why a third-party candidate is so dangerous for Biden and why anybody who supports a third-party candidate is basically voting for Donald Trump. Um, so I think that uh, the, the ability of Americans to look at Trump, uh, any potential candidate, I mean, a candidate, potential president, sitting in the dock, getting tried, uh, I think it's a very disturbing uh, element to people. They don't like it. There's, there's no part of our uh, culture which says, you know, it's good to be indicted. You know, there's not like a Boy Scout leader, a Girl Scout leader, a coach or a teacher or a minister or anybody out there that says, hey, you know, look, it's really good to have being indicted on your resume. You ought to work on that. Um, so I think you have to sort of step back from this day to day and look at it. Okay, what, what is it to, about America that still, you know, we believe in? You're talking about this some with that uh, fast cars moment, a beautiful moment. I don't think that most Americans want to vote for a guy that a, a, a jury in his hometown, federal jury, found him guilty of sexual assault that the judge called rape. I mean, call me crazy. I don't think we want to elect a rapist president. Um, and. Trump is an angry, unbalanced, uh, broken man. And I don't think – I think at the end of the day, that guy's not going to win this race. Um, you have to ultimately bet on America. You know, in most of these races – I mean, you know this better than anyone. You know, the most optimistic candidate wins. And, and Trump – if you haven't watched Trump's announcement speech, in Waco, Texas, 30th anniversary of the Branch Davidian siege. You really should do it. I thought that I knew what it said. I'd seen bits and pieces. When I wrote this last book, I made myself go back and watch it. It is the most disturbing piece of video you can imagine. He declares war on the United States of America. This is a final ballot, final battle. This is a, a, about our retribution. It opens not with the uh, Pledge of Allegiance to the United States, but this weird uh, insurrectionist anthem that they sing with a bunch of now convicts. Um, right. That guy, I don't think is going to get elected president of the United States, but the only way to do it is, you know, that's why I wake up every day and work, you know, 18 hours for the Lincoln project to make sure it doesn't happen. Okay. Well, Stuart Stevens, as always, it's great to have you. Um, it's, uh, it's great to get a fresh look at exactly what's going on on the ground, and we appreciate you coming on. Thank you very, very much. No, thanks, Kevin. Uh, I love the show. All the best. Okay. All right. Stuart Stevens, he is a senior advisor to the Lincoln Project. He's a writer. Uh, he's the author of two, two books, well, many books, uh, but the latest is The Conspiracy to End America, How My Old Party is Driving Our Democracy to Autocracy. Um, lest you think he's just in the Joe Biden, this is a guy who worked for Mitt Romney, uh, George W. Bush, and is responsible for uh, many, many years ago electing a, a ton of Republican senators and uh, congressmen and governors. So it, it it behooves us to pay attention to uh, to what he's saying. And I, for one, I, I learn a lot when I when I listen to him. 
We're going to take a break, and we're going to go deeper down the rabbit hole of uh, explaining international politics. And uh, we'll be right back with all of that right after this. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. 